You know, last uh, week, our family celebrated Knox's birthday um, on Saturday, and it's weird how that works. Kids get older every year, and it reminds you that you do too. But uh, before we tucked him into bed, we grabbed our, our, I grabbed my phone. I was looking back through my photos from December 12th, 2014, and uh, showing him his little baby head uh, wrapped in that little hospital, what do you call those things? So, yeah, well, swaddling cloths, that's appropriate given what we're about to read, but those little beanies they put on their heads, yeah. And they're just so cute, you know, their skin is so soft, and they have all those little bumps on them from being in their mommy's tummy, and anyway, I was just telling him how special he was, and, and in all those photos, I came across the one that was perfectly staged and highly edited, and the one that I posted out on social media to announce the birth of my firstborn child, my son, you know, and I said, hey, this is how much Knox weighs, this is how long he is, this is what time he came, mom's doing good, you know, and I just announced it to the world, so proud, and something like that happens in the passage we're going to see this morning, an announcement of the birth of a firstborn son, although you probably already know this, um, it wasn't blasted out on Instagram and Facebook, uh, and it wasn't Joseph talking about the length of the baby Jesus and how Mary was doing. Reco she's recovering in the barn. No worries. No, it wasn't like that. It was the announcement given by angels, not of the details of the baby Jesus, but really to tell what God was going to do through him. And because of that, I, I kind of find this story to be really compelling because we get caught up in the details of the Christmas story. But really, Advent, if it's anything, if, if it's worth celebrating or remembering or keeping Advent at all, it's really to reinvest ourselves in the most basic facts of our faith. You know what I mean? Uh, before we get to the cross, we have to come to the cradle. And from the beginning, these angels proclaim that this is the Savior, Christ the Lord. And so this morning, as we wrap up with this Advent series, Advent is a season to praise, I just want to get one simple point across to you. And it's a really a great point to finish a year and begin a new one. It's that people who know the truth about Jesus are people of praise. To get that people, there's no, there's no screen today, so it's not going to be blasted out there in front of you. It is in your worship packet, but people who know the truth about Jesus are people of praise. And we see this play out in the lives of the shepherds. So if you've got your Bible, open it with me to Luke chapter 2 again. And we're going to pick up where Mike left off in verse 8. So you might want to get that out and look at it. We're going to read through verse 20 this morning. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. 
You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Gloria in excelsis Deo. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now we'll come back. Let's leave it off for here for a second. Let's think about this because this is an interesting sort of story. Um, we've kind of been tracking God revealing and disclosing what he intended to do through the birth of Jesus. And, and Luke, in his gospel, just in seven verses, gives us the details of Jesus' birth in the manger in Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn. They lay him in a manger. And almost immediately, the scene changes. The camera moves. And it's not to distant cousins or to the people personally involved in the events themselves, but it's to shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. Up to this point, everybody involved in the story has a personal stake in it. Either you're Zachariah and Elizabeth, the parents of the forerunner of the Messiah. You're Mary, the one who's going to carry this son of God. But here, the scope expands, and more people are brought into the mix. And it's shepherds. You know, and this is a, I mean, we've already, how many, I mean, if you tried, you could probably have selected maybe five or six other songs about shepherds. I mean, that's like, for some reason, as we think about the Christmas story, the shepherds captivate our minds. They are these romanticized men of the earth. You know, there are entire genres of literature and art called the pastoral. And if you look up what pastoral means, it means shepherds who watch their sheep over open grazing areas. And in our minds, we have this sort of idealized image, not, not far from what David Brent up there likes, the cowboys. You know, we, we imagine the cowboy on his horse on the open range, you know, a, a west open before him, going anywhere his steed will take him. And that's romantic to us, you know, and, and that's kind of what happens with the shepherds. We idealize them as men of the earth. But in the ancient world, they were looked down upon as unclean and uncouth because they lived their lives among dirty sheep. And so they're kind of like cowboys in that way too because in the same way that the West is open to them every time they rolled into those dusty towns, we know they got into some serious trouble. You know, they were some unsavory dudes shooting each other at a drop of the hat, drinking whiskey and playing cards. So this is the kind of person that gets brought into the mix of the gospel story. Not somebody with a personal stake, not somebody who's actually personally experiencing the birth of the Christ or the birth of his forerunner, but these guys living out on the fringes of society. And so the appearance of this angel is, is pretty surprising. But that's what happens. Luke tells us that they're watching their flocks by night, and all of a sudden, verse 9, an angel appears before them, and the glory of God shines around them. And the angel opens his mouth, and he proclaims to them the truth about Jesus. Right? He tells him, This day in the city of David, a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. Now we've said, John told us a couple weeks ago, and I reiterated it last week, Mary had this encounter with Gabriel, totally surprising. She is just a young teenage girl from a backwater town, totally insignificant and undistinguished among the women of the world. But Gabriel appears before her 
and announces to her the coming of Christ. We go a couple of steps down the totem pole to get to the shepherds. And so it's not surprising that when the angel appears and proclaims the truth about Jesus, they shake in their boots. They're frightened. They're afraid the angel's here in the divine glory, ready to strike them down or something. But instead, he brings good news, great joy. The Savior is born for you today, who is Christ the Lord. This is like a one-sentence summary of the gospel message. It is the truth about Jesus. And if you think about these three titles, they kind of stand in for, I, I mentioned earlier, I think you were out, how when Knox was born, I posted on Facebook how long he was and how much he weighed and how you were doing, how you were recovering. And they didn't do this. Instead, the stand-in for the length, the weight, the time of birth is Savior, Christ, Lord. These three titles speak not to who Jesus is, but what role he's going to fulfill for his people Israel. You think about the first one, Savior. Now, I put this in my notes early in the week and didn't fill out much detail because we all know about the Savior thing. I can just kind of ad-lib and pull some things together on the fly and explain to you what a Savior is. And this morning as I stood up here to prepare myself for that, practicing my sermon, I realized to actually define what a Savior is and what these shepherds would have thought about was actually pretty challenging. The word Savior can also be translated deliverer. Of course, God had promised His people through the prophets that one day He was going to send a Savior and deliverer. Zechariah chapter 9, He said, The Lord their God would save them as the flock of His people. But an interesting thing had happened. For the Jews of the first century, they had assumed that their biggest problem, the thing they really needed to be delivered from, was the oppression of their Roman overlords. And so they assumed that when God fulfilled all these promises about a Savior, that He'd do it in a, a really obvious way, that He'd ride in on a white horse, kick the Romans out of Jerusalem, take over the town, set up His throne in the temple, and He'd reign forever and ever, and the nations would stream in. That's in the back of their mind. But had they known what God was really up to, had they had the behind-the-scenes view that you and I have, they would have known Matthew 1, 21, when the angel appeared to Joseph and said, You'll name the child Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, the whole idea of a Savior, born for you today in the city of David, is a Savior was not first and foremost the king who was going to kick out the Romans, but it was God in the flesh who was going to take care of the deepest problem of the human condition. That like the scripture says, that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death. The scripture says that you and I have a problem that there is a just and holy God out there who created us for His glory. And we have turned things around and we live for ourselves. Our biggest problem is that we will stand before Him one day and be justly condemned to an eternity apart from Him. But God took it on Himself. We all like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, that what God is doing 
And what this angel is announcing in the truth about Jesus is that the deepest problem of the human condition, the thing that separates us from the God who loves us and made us for Him, is going to be resolved. That He's going to send His own Son to save His people from their sins. And so that's the first thing the angel announces. Not the weight of the baby, but that He's going to be the Savior. Christ follows right along after that. These shepherds might have been unclean and uncouth, but they were Jews, and so they were familiar with the promises of the Old Testament, and they knew that God had promised to one day send a Messiah, right, an anointed one, a servant who was going to come and bring about the fulfillment of all these promises. The word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And so they had a concept of what that meant, that, okay, a baby has been born who is the Messiah. Could it be? Right, in the Old Testament, this begins um, pretty early on. Actually, we sang about it in that strange verse that you may never have heard before. Verse, uh, what was that? Verse 4. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now we face. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above. Reinstate us in thy love. Wow. That ought to be all four verses. Let's just get rid of the other ones. That one is so good. Because here's the idea, Genesis 3.15. We all have it clear in our minds, right? Adam and Eve sin against God. They uh, are tempted by the serpent and they give in. They hide themselves from him, make for themselves fig leaves. And God comes and says, who told you you were naked? And they all do the finger pointing game. Adam says, hey, it's a woman you gave me. And the woman says, no, it was a serpent over there. And God says, hey, it doesn't matter. You're all in trouble. And he pronounces all the curses, right? And he curses Adam. He said, now you're going to eat by the sweat of your brow. The ground is going to be turned against you. By heavy labor will you get your bread, right? Then he goes to Eve. Eve, cursed are you because you have sinned against me. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you, and you'll have pain in childbirth. And then he gets to the serpent. Serpent, oh man, you are doomed. You're going to have to roll around on your belly, eating the dust of the earth. And listen, I put enmity between you and the seed of this woman. One day, he's going to come. You'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And from that point forward, the Old Testament holds out a promise of somebody coming, this seed of the woman. Moses says, the Lord's going to raise up for you from among your brothers a prophet like me. David gets this promise from God in 2 Samuel 7. You'll always have a son sitting on your throne. And finally, this image of an anointed one coming to crush the serpent's head, to establish his throne that's going to reign forever and ever. Finally, the angel says, Today, in the city of David, one is born for you, a Savior, Christ, the Messiah, the one who's bringing all these promises to their fulfillment and tying up all the loose strands. He's here. And you get to the third one, the Lord. Now, Lord is just absolutely simple for us to understand. The, the definition of a Lord is a person who's in charge. You can say a person who's in charge by right of their ownership. And so the Lord of the vineyard owns the vineyard, and therefore it's his right to tell you what's going to happen in his vineyard. Jesus told a parable about the vineyard and the vineyard leases who refused to give the Lord of the vineyard what he wanted. But you could also be in charge by virtue of your authority. 
And that's what a king is all about. A king possesses authority because he has a title and a role of authority. He is the king. And so you do what he says because he's your Lord. He's in charge. And so we understand that if Jesus is the Messiah, born in the city of David, descendant of David, the one who's going to take up his throne, well, of course he's Lord. He's in charge. He possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. But if you're an astute Bible reader, you also know that in your Old Testament, you're reading along and all of a sudden you come across the word Lord, like I did in Psalm 1846. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The word Lord's in all capitals because the translators want you to know something. That if you could read the Hebrew, and I can't read Hebrew, I can just fake it. Um, but if you could read Hebrew, you'd know that behind that word Lord is the name of God. Yahweh, Jehovah. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, out of reverence for God, the Jews refused to pronounce the name Yahweh. So they'd stand in for another Hebrew word, Adonai, which means Lord. And so in the announcement of the truth about Jesus from this angel, born for you this day in the city of David is a Savior, Christ the Lord. Of course, there's an affirmation that Jesus is in charge. He has authority. So you're going to do what he says. But from the beginning, there's the implication that this baby laid in a manger is somehow caught up with God himself. And of course, it'll take time for this to play out and his disciples will be slow to understand it. But eventually, like in Mark 8, Jesus can look at his disciples and say, who do you say that I am? And Peter can say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so from the beginning, this angel announces the truth about Jesus, that he is Savior, Christ, and Lord. Now, if you had beheld that, and, and Luke is clear that this angel was unmistakable. You know, um, the author of the letter to the Hebrews tells us to be hospitable to everyone because some have entertained angels without knowing about it. All right. The shepherds knew right up front that they were dealing with angelic and heavenly beings. Luke tells us the divine glory shone all around them. And after this pronouncement, you can understand how afraid they would be, uh, it, torn, shaken in their boots. But an amazing thing happens because as they are trying to process what it could mean that these lowly shepherds have been granted the privilege of receiving direct revelation from God about the Savior, Christ, and Lord, the one angel that had them spooked is now joined by an army of angels crying out to God, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to the men with whom he is pleased. They're praising God. They're praising God. And I think this is a really interesting song. We, we've sang it, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. What they're doing is they are drawing attention to who God is. Right? God in Himself possesses all perfection than you and I can ever imagine. Uh, you think you know what beauty is, but if you could behold God, your definitions would have to change. He is wonderful. Within Himself, He possesses all knowledge, all righteousness, all holiness, all justice, all truth, all love. And He's like a, a burning star that fuels itself, and as it fuels itself, it gives off light that you can see across the galaxy. See, God is glorious in Himself because of all that He is in Himself. 
And when a human being looks at him, what we see is that effulgence, the glory, his majesty, all that he is in himself overflowing. That's what the shepherd saw when the angel was there surrounded by the glory of God. What, what is that? How can you be surrounded by something that's spirit? How can you see something that's an invisible God? But Isaiah saw it. He, he saw it in the temple. Isaiah 6 saw the Lord seated on the throne. The train of His robe filled the temple. He, he beheld the divine glory. We know that when God took up residence in the temple, His glory was manifested in such a way that, that priests weren't able to even enter in. And so what the angels are doing, they say glory to God in the highest, is they are drawing attention to all that God is in Himself. And they are praising Him for it. Glory to God in the highest. But an amazing thing happens. John tells us in John 1 that he had beheld the glory of the Father as only the Son could reveal it. And so the angels praise the glory that God has within himself and also what that glory does when it takes up residence in the person of Jesus in that it makes peace between God and man possible. So they praise God for who he is, all glorious burning fire of wonderful things, and then what he does, making peace between himself and man. And I think the amazing thing about this, and the point that I want you to see for the thesis of my sermon, that the people who know the truth about Jesus are people of praise, is that as soon as the first angel announces the truth of Christ, born for you this day in the city of David is a Savior, Christ the Lord, a choir of angels shows up and praises God. The revelation of who God is led to praise. And it's important. Because as those angels recede in the background, the shepherds are left there trying to figure out what they're going to do. All right, so let's pick back up here in verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight into Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay there in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known to everyone the statement which had been told them about this child. So the angels have this vision. I mean, the shepherds have this vision of the angel in the choir singing praises to God. And I imagine the angels, I don't know, disintegrate or evaporate or disappear one way or the other. And here are these shepherds Look around at each other. What did we just see? You know, but, but whatever they did, I can not only imagine, they decide that the appropriate course of action for them, after having the truth about Jesus announced to them, is to investigate the matter for themselves. Let's get up right now and go into Bethlehem and try to see this thing for ourselves. So that's what they do, right? They, they stand up and they, it's amazing. Jesus told the parable about the shepherd who would leave the 99 to find the one. And these shepherds literally did leave their flocks out in the open fields and went two miles back into town to Bethlehem to try to find the baby that the angel had just told them about. And we're going to sing a little town of Bethlehem in a minute. But really, if you think about this town, they didn't go into a, a ghost town. You know, people tucked in their beds at night sleeping soundly or something. This place is crazy. It's packed to the gills, so packed that there are no rooms in the inn. So people are having to sleep in barns, you know, and, and they're trying to track down 
one baby among all these people. So I, you know, maybe they go door to door. Hey, is the baby here? Is the baby here? Where is the baby? Have you seen the baby? And as they go asking this question, surely people are so confused. You know, what's up with these dirty shepherds trying to find the baby? How do they know there's a baby been born? And what's a big deal? Babies are born all the time. Why are you worried about this baby? But in any case, they finally track down the barn where the baby is, and they go inside, and boom, their investigation leads to confirmation. They see that it's just like the angel said it would be. There's the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. Their investigation led to confirmation. And so they announced to everybody, this is what was just happening. All these people standing around in the barn, celebrating. They're all distant cousins, all back for the census, coming back to the ancestral home. And so they tell them, well, well, here's how we knew to be looking for this baby. We had just seen an angel that told us that this kid is the Savior, the Christ, the Son of God. We'll get to their response in a second, but before we do, I just want to make the point that when we think about these basic facts of Christianity, things that, like I've said every week, we have celebrated every year since we were born, some of it becomes sort of rote to us, just facts that we agree to and assent to. Yeah, we know this is the case. In fact, I was, Knox and I went Thursday to San Marcos, and on our way back, we were just kind of having a conversation, and he's asking more questions about God, but they don't always make sense, like this one. He said, Dad, did you exist when God was alive? <laughs> Which, if you think about it, is wrong in, in both counts. You know, did I exist when God was alive? But we kind of can think that kind of way sometimes. Like for Knox, he hasn't quite conceptualized that God not only is alive now and was alive then, but has life within himself. And what he's trying to figure out is, does this person that we always talk about, God and his son Jesus, does he know anybody that knows them? Is there any point of connection to the timeline of his life, which at this point is short and only six years, and I'm basically we're like you're, you, our church family, is like all he knows about the world. And so he's trying to figure out if this God guy has any point of contact with him. Did you know God? Well, what was he like? Where did he live? What did he do? And So anyway, all that to say that when we get to this point of being mature Christians, knowing things just kind of inside and out as a matter of fact, we can kind of lose the sense of wonder that a six-year-old kid has that would lead them to investigate the truthfulness of what his parents says. You know, like these shepherds who get this message of the truth about Jesus told to them, and, and they're caught up in it. Could it be? Is it really true? If it's true, this changes everything. We've got to investigate this thing and find it out for ourselves. And maybe you can remember being a young Christian or even a child. And you remember all the kind of nonsense questions you'd ask. Oh, you couldn't wait to open your Bible because you just knew that you were going to discover something new about God and you'd badger your Sunday school teacher or your pastor with questions about the end times or the size of the temple or the Ark of the Covenant. You just had to know more. You were hungry. You were investigating and wrestling with what the Word says. But over time, those things become sort of just facts that we accept without really any personal connection to them. And that's a dangerous place to be. When out of either a passive approach, an, an entertainment approach, we 
like to hear the stories of Christmas recounted every year because it puts us in that sentimental and nostalgic frame of mind that really lets us get the most out of the season. Or we're just apathetic and we don't care whether these things are true or not. But listen, when a person investigates the truth about Jesus, those facts that they're up here start moving down to here. And they take root in their heart and they change their life. Without investigating the truth about Jesus and just accepting the announcement that you might hear from a preacher, your best hope is having some interesting Bible trivia rattling around in your head. But if you really wrestle and investigate with the truth about Jesus, it will absolutely change your life. It will turn you into a person of praise. Which brings us to this last point, which we have the announcement of the truth about Jesus, the investigation of the truth about Jesus. Now we have the response to the truth about Jesus. And Luke actually lays out for us three different responses. And I, I tried to decide if he means for us to understand them in any sort of hierarchy of responses. Is he intentionally drawing our attention to the hot, cold, and just right of responses to the truth about Jesus? And I'll leave that up for you to decide. But the first one comes in verse 18, when he talks about the people who are gathered there in the barn. Right, he says in Luke 2.18, And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Right, so which things? Let's make sure we're clear. The shepherds come in, running back from their flocks two miles outside of town. They come in, finally find the baby. Everybody's like, how did you even know this baby was here? And they say, well, the angels told us. And at that, all the people who were there wonder, wow. It's actually the same word that Luke uses earlier in Luke chapter 1 when Zachariah is in the temple offering incense and he gets detained by Gabriel. And outside there's a crowd of worshipers who are praying for him while he's offering incense and they start looking at their watch and they wonder, Luke says. They look around at each other. He's been in there a while. I wonder what's going on. Or I wonder... What's taken him so long? He's been in there quite a while. Right? They're trying to figure out what it means that Zechariah is in the temple longer than he's supposed to. They're trying to figure out what it means that angels have appeared to dusty old shepherds while they're watching their flock to announce to them the birth of a Savior who is the Christ. And here he is, supposedly, in this manger. I wonder what they're talking about. I wonder if it's true. I wonder what it means if this baby really is the Savior. They're wondering. But then there's another response. Verse 19, and Luke actually says, but, but Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary goes a little bit further. She's not just wondering, she's pondering. Right? She'd already heard from Gabriel that she was going to have a baby. She was going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. She was going to bear a child who was going to be the Son of God. Then she goes to Elizabeth's house, and Elizabeth greets her, says, Who am I that I should be visited by the mother of my Lord? And now here is another confirmation. She's going to get a bunch more the rest of chapter 2, but here's another confirmation that she's not crazy. That these angels have appeared to another group of people and have told them the same thing that Mary heard from Gabriel, the same thing that she'd heard from Elizabeth. And so she treasured these things in her heart, pondering what they could mean. What does it mean? How is this going to all work out? 
But I'm believing. I'm hanging on to it. I'm treasuring. But I'm trying to figure it out. And then we get the third response from the shepherds, which kind of brings the story full circle. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. And so this is where we get, right? The full circle of the story. The angel appeared announcing the truth about Jesus. Then he's joined by an angel army who's singing praises to God. The shepherds go into Jerusalem, investigate for themselves, and they discover that it's true. It's just like the angel said. They had the sign confirmed for them. They found the baby just as he said it would be. And so this is the Savior. This is the Christ, the Lord. And they leave and go back praising and glorifying God. That's why I'm trying to get across this point. That a person who knows the truth about Jesus will be a person of praise. That is the natural endpoint for every last person who's hearing this sermon today. That if you know the truth about Jesus, that He's the Savior, the Son of God, sent to live a sinless life, perfectly fulfilling the law of God, never transgressing it, always doing what God required, never doing what God forbid, who taught wonderful things, spoke with one who had authority, didn't rely on commentators and scholars, but just spoke and people believed. One who performed miracles as attestments to who he said he was. God certifying and saying, yes, my power, my spirit is on him to do the things I said he was going to do. The Jesus who was crucified as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. So that all who would believe in him would find forgiveness from their sins. The Jesus who was raised up on the third day, spent 40 days with his disciples, and then ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns forever. The Jesus who promises to come again and finally fulfill what all the promises said, that he would rule on earth as in heaven. This Jesus all began in a manger in the city of David. That's the truth about Jesus. Do you know that truth? Because a person who knows it, and, and not, I don't mean in the way that I just recounted it, not a person who could pass the Sunday school clep test so you don't have to go anymore because you already know everything. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody who goes from the theoretical knowledge of God to the personal knowledge, the experiential knowledge, where it takes root in their heart. So they know that Jesus didn't come and fulfill the law for the world. He came and fulfilled the law for me. Because I fail every time I try to keep God's commands. But Jesus came and fulfilled it for me. Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the world. Jesus died for Brad Mill's sins. For Brad Mill's temper. For Brad Mill's doubts. For Brad Mill's insecurities. For Brad Mill's slip-ups, faults, and indiscretions. He came and died for me. Jesus was raised not just so that somebody somewhere might have new life. But Jesus was raised up for the grave so that I don't have to be bound by my sin anymore, but I can experience newness of life in Him. That's the kind of knowledge I'm talking about. It goes beyond the theoretical to the personal and experiential that Jesus is this for me. And when that happens, when you investigate that, when you wrestle with it, when you try it on for size and see if maybe perhaps it could be true, could it be as good as it's written in this dusty book? Could it be as good as it is when the guy on the stage says it, not an angel, I'll give you that, 
But a guy on stage, could it be that way? When you investigate, when you wrestle, try it on for size, you discover that it is, it absolutely changes everything. You can't be the person you were before. Those shepherds might have gone back to do their shepherding, making sure their sheep had food and water, making sure they made it safely back to the pen, made sure that wolves and lions and bears didn't get them. But they were never the same. They'd heard the truth about Jesus, they had investigated it, and they left glorifying and praising God that people like them could experience the salvation that God provides. Listen, this is the perfect time of year for you to reacquaint yourself, rediscover the truth about Jesus. It's not like the movies that are playing on TV, just kind of part of the season, comes around every year, going to think about Jesus again next Christmas. This is the perfect time to wrestle with the facts, to see if God is alive for you today. It's even a perfect time. You're going into the new year. Maybe the commitment, the resolution you need to write down in your journal or on your mirror is that in 2021, I'm going to live like Jesus is the Savior, like He's the Christ, like He's the Lord. And I'm going to be a person of praise. Talked a lot about that. Haven't really given you a definition of what about a person of praise is. Maybe today at lunch, you could talk with your family. What would it look like in our life if we became people of praise? If we became a family of praise? Now, one, one commentator did define praise like this. He says, In giving oneself to a life of praise, we declare total alignment to the purposes of God. In giving ourselves to a life of praise, we declare total alignment to the purposes of God. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 12 when he says to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your perfect act of worship, spiritual act of worship. That's what he means, and that's what it means to be a person of praise, to totally align your life to the purposes of God so that everywhere you go and everything you do, you're talking about the Jesus who is the Savior, Christ, and Lord, and you're living for His glory and praise. Will you pray with me?